Leaning Toward Wisdom, Season 2021, Episode 12, Being Honest with Yourself. How's it really going? Greetings and welcome inside the Yellow Studio. The website is leaningtowardwisdom.com. If things stay as they are, you will stay as you are. It's just how life and entropy work. The subject today is self-delusion and how we can avoid it. As we hit the record button, today is Monday, July the 19th, 2021. I know, I know. Took way too long to get to episode 12. We're going to give this a go today. As with all shows, been a whole lot of pondering going on behind the scenes. Hours and hours and hours of pondering. I know it doesn't show. Not as much as it should. But it's true. I mostly fully prepare shows before I hit the record button. And it's not because I am an over-preparer. It mostly is because I enjoy the process of writing. I enjoy the process of getting my thoughts down on a screen or on paper. I used to write quite a lot in longhand. Do you do that anymore? I'm pretty sure that they do not teach cursive handwriting in school. I need to ask the grandkids, but I don't think they do which is kind of a shame. No, it's not kind of a shame. It is a shame. I still write longhand. I still take notes longhand every week, but the majority of the writing that I do is at a keyboard. I still think it's one of the best skills that I've ever learned. I mean, it's right up there. Seventh grade. Seventh grade typing class on an old manual Olympia typewriter and the action on it, I mean, it, it took, I don't know, maybe 10 pounds of pressure (laughs) to put, push a key down really difficult, really difficult. But today I'm just, man, I'm so thankful that I know, I know the keys without looking. It's pretty terrific. I often do think about my love affair with the guitar, even though I don't play. And I often wonder if I would have learned If I would have learned to play a guitar, if I would have learned basic chord structure and that kind of stuff, beginning in the seventh grade, what kind of a gift would that be? Well, we'll never know because I didn't, but I did learn to type and it was impactful. I I do think that I learned to type because as long as I can remember, I've enjoyed writing. I didn't always enjoy reading because, well, you know, as a kid, you're you have to read this and you have to read that. And it really wasn't until I started reading some books about historical characters that reading kind of came to life for me. And of course, as, as most boys, uh, 10, 11 or so began to really read about sports figures and sports teams and things. One of my earliest memories is reading the autobiography of Jerry Kramer, famous Green Bay Packer. I still have that book. Still have the book. And inside the book, I still have a letter from Dan Devine, who coached the Green Bay Packers after my beloved Vince Lombardi bugged out and went to Washington. What a traitor. I didn't like him after that. I really, really didn't like him. And I think I've said before, because Bart Starr was, I mean, he was kind of the sports hero, if you want to call it that, even though I really never did have heroes. I really, really liked Bart Starr as a kid. And when Lombardi went to Washington and proclaimed that Sonny Jurgensen was best quarterback he had ever coached, I thought, you dirty dog. I didn't like him after that. Uh, later on, as an adult, I kind of did. Came back, came back around. I read, read quite a lot about the guy. There's no denying his power of 
helping people be honest with themselves, I guess. I don't know how I got started on that. Well, I know writing, writing, learning to type was a big deal because I wanted to write. And I suppose I would have learned to chord a guitar. I would have learned all the chords of a guitar. If playing music would have been as important to me as writing, it wasn't. And there's that. I really enjoy listening to music though. And I've said this before. I enjoy listening to music way more than I would ever enjoy playing music, except by hitting a play button. So I'm sitting in front of a client, brand new client, never met this person before. And this is, this is how it happens. If a, if a client hires me, then clearly we've met before. But in cases where I am hired by a, what I call a sponsor, meaning a boss hires me for one of their direct reports, then typically the sponsor, in this case, the boss and I meet with the client, the boss's direct report, and the boss introduces me and we exchange a a few pleasantries and then the sponsor leaves, or in this case, the boss leaves. And now it's me and the client our first time together alone. I would say 99% of the time, uh, within the first 15 minutes well, easily within the first 15 minutes, uh, I, I am, I am this new, this person's new best friend. I mean, they are, they are opening up. They are very forthcoming. They, and by, by this point I have fully explained to them in front of their boss in this case, I have fully explained to them the way this works and that I'm not going to betray their confidence and that I'm not going to be running to the boss and telling the boss anything that they say. Um, and everybody's just at ease, really comfortable, really quickly. I I've, I've worked at it and I will admit, and you're going to have to let me relish a little bit in this because, well, a person, I have so few gifts. I need to really lean heavily into the ones I do have. And this is one that I have. I'm able to connect with people really quickly and able to gain trust very quickly. And it's not magic. It is because I am genuinely interested and curious. And it's apparent to people that I genu- I genuinely do care. I, I am there to serve them. I am there for their betterment. I got no other dog in the hunt except to help them any way that I can to figure it out. I remind them I am not here to figure it out for you. I am not here as some guru who's going to tell you everything that you should or shouldn't do. It's your life. The last thing I'm trying to do is live your life for you. You can go over to my website, growgreat.com, and I think on the about page I have some quote about having somebody chew it'd be like somebody chewing your food for you it might seem very efficient but you lose all the taste and i'm not trying to chew people's food for them which is a really gross metaphor but there it is (laughs) there is a group of people a single group of people that are the exception to the rule of people that i connect with quickly and it is it is largely my own doing i think and that is that smartest person in the room you know, the type, I just don't want to connect with those people. I really, I, I, I do not want these people in my life and I never have. And thankfully in a dozen or more years of coaching clients, I've, I've never had that type of person go figure. It's funny how that works, you know, because the smartest person in the room, they, they don't need any help. And, and these are often some of the most delusional people on the planet by the way, funny how that works. Now, this particular person that I'm sitting in front of, he's not arrogant. He's very reserved. Okay. He's guarded, extremely guarded. That's fine. I respect that. I've had guarded people in front of me. The guard usually comes down really quickly, but yeah, not so. So now fast forward and three weeks later at the beginning of our third session together, I'm continuing to probe and trying my best to get him to open up. And all I get are one word answers. Fine. 
you know, how are things going? How's everybody? Fine. How's the wife and kids? Fine. (laughs) No details ever. I mean, just nothing, nothing. And I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm probing like a CIA interrogator. Like I'm trying to extract information. And yet sitting across from me is this seemingly professionally trained enemy spy who's just not given anything up at all. So I'm feeling like an absolute failure, a a very poor performing CIA interrogator. Cause I mean, I'm just getting nothing. And at some point in the third session, I finally say, okay, I want to know how it, I want to know how it's really going. (laughs) Heavy emphasis on really. I, re- I want to know how it's really going. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> Listen, I, you know, some days you eat the bear and some days the bear eats you. Hey, the good news is eventually it all, it worked out. It worked out, but it was, it was tough going there for a while, but it made me think about this topic of being honest with ourselves and, and parenthetically and being honest with somebody else. And I'm not saying that we ought to that we ought to do this with everybody because we shouldn't. And I understand that we live in a day and age with social media where everybody wants to share everything and overshare. And, and I, I can sometimes be guilty of that too. Um, the irony for me is I don't tend to, I don't tend to share the highlights. I tend to share the low lights. What's up with that? Maybe there's a therapist out there that can chime in on that. I'm just not, I'm, I'm just not that, um, I don't know. I'm just not that reticent to show my humanity, you know, I don't know. Self-deception though, got me thinking about being honest with yourself. It got me thinking about the people within our lives that we can be honest with. Admittedly, that can be a really small number. It can be a micro number. It could be a bigger number. And the question, how is it really going? Because we all know that we get on this autopilot kick. We shake hands with somebody. Hey, how are you today? Fine. Right. You just, you don't even think about it. You just say fine. And we all know that that's just code for, I don't want to talk about it. Or I'm not going to tell you, (laughs) which is frankly the appropriate, that, that, that typically is what I'm saying. So when you ask me how I'm doing and I say, fine, then just know I'm not going to tell you. And it's no, it's not an affront to you. It just means you're not the one for me, which also sent me one evening some weeks ago down a bunny trail of, of pondering the people who, who think that they are it for everybody or they should be right. They just feel it's their, it's their, it's their lifelong or God given obligation to be the person to whom everybody else is vulnerable. And I'm just like, do you not understand how impractical that is? Do you not understand the difference in people? Do you not understand that you may not be the ideal person, the ideal trusted advisor for everybody? As much as I pride myself in being capable of doing that kind of work, and I do, and doing it outside of work, and I do, I'm not the right guy for everybody. There's just no question. I am just not the right person for everybody. There are certain people that I'm certain that I would absolutely be an ill fit for. And I'm in no way offended by that. We're all different. And the kind of people that we are attracted to, the kind of people that we feel safest with, it differs. Yes, there are some universal truths about safety. We'll talk about some of that I'm sure as we carry along here, but we're talking about self-deception and we're, we're talking about trusted advisors, people that can help us avoid deceiving ourselves. I got to looking at the books in my bookshelves and I've got quite a few books that have something to do with deceiving ourselves, deluding ourselves, thinking something that isn't true. Now, some cases, there, there's a ton of books written and a ton of verbiage out there about how we have these self-limiting beliefs. You, I mean, if you just Google that phrase, you get oodles of results, self-limiting beliefs. That is, we think 
well, this is hard. Has it dawned on you like it, it has me, especially with this recent, all this recent news of going into space, right? With Sir Richard going to space and Jeff Bezos and, you know, I mean, these billionaires who are, so you've got these three billionaires, you know, who, who seem to be fighting for space literally. And I get to thinking about the things in my life that I want to achieve. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to go to space. I'm not trying to build rockets. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to shuttle people to Mars and back. Um, <laughs> uh, the things that I'm trying to do, I, they they've just got to be drop dead easy compared to all that has that kind of thought ever crossed your mind as you think about the things that you want to do and and in those moments where where you're you're sitting there like i do and we all do i'm sure and lamenting the fact that man this is hard i can't believe this is that hard this shouldn't this should not be that hard and then you realize there are people on the planet that are doing things that are truly genuinely hard and whatever I'm doing, in fact, the sum total of everything that I'm doing is not hard, mm-hmm. but it can seem hard. It's that self-limiting belief. There's a lot of that for many of us. And I rather, t- I, this is how I'm wired. I rather tend to think that the person that doesn't have any self-limiting beliefs, I mean, couldn't you consider that they're delusional? I mean, how could you not, how could you not be, how could you think that how could you think that something that we all know is difficult is not difficult? <laughs> I've talked about this man before, and I should go back and research to figure out who, who he was, but I don't remember, but he talked, taught freshman economics. So I'm sitting in this big auditorium at LSU and he's mostly mind numbing, right? It's, he's one of those. You just, it's just all you can do to stay awake. All you can do to stay awake. But he did announce that he was going to have this class on how you could be rich. And of course we all just packed in like sardines on that one. That was the one day we weren't going to skip. And this was coming off the end of the Vietnam war. And there were a lot of people that had migrated, immigrated from Vietnam to America for obvious reasons, boat people. And they were ridiculously industrious. They had come from a civilization that we could not relate to at all. And he commented how not only they, but many immigrants had come to America through the decades and had found wild success, not all, but many. And he posed the question to us all, you know, why? And he answered the question for us. And I thought he had it right. It it resonated with me so much so that here I am decades later, I still remember it vividly. And he said, because they don't know how hard it is. They come to America. It's the land of opportunity. I mean, man alive, all your wildest dreams can come true. If you get to America and they just knew if they could just get here, not speaking the language with not a dime to their name. And they just knew that it was such a terrific opportunity that if they could just get here, they'd figure it out. And guess what? Many, if not most did figure it out. I'm not saying that they all got wildly rich, but they mostly made it. They mostly did figure it out. They learned a language that they had never known before. They worked their tails off one, two, however many jobs they did, whatever they had to do. Many, many family members, all living under one roof, living in conditions that were well, were grand compared to where they came for. And they made sacrifices that, well, we weren't going to be willing to make as a bunch of college students. Oh, sure. We'd all pile in and stay under one roof, but that was not something that anybody wanted to do for an extended period of time. And we certainly were not about working two or three jobs. You kidding me? Barely wanted to work one part time, but he was absolutely right. We had been brought up and we had been trained. It's difficult. Success is difficult. And he put it in economic terms, getting wealthy, getting wealthy is tough. Getting rich is hard. It's hard work to get rich. But if you're coming from Vietnam, you don't know that you haven't been engulfed in our culture long enough to know, Hey, when you get to America, it's not going to be as great as you think it is. Cause they thought it was, 
And you know what? They made it happen. There's something to that. There really, really is something to that. So I can look at that context and I can feel that way, but then I can look at somebody who acts like everything is a piece of cake. Nothing's going to be difficult. And you just think, are you out of your mind? (laughs) How deluded are you to think I've talked to people who were going to start an enterprise and they would say, I'm thinking about this. What do you, what do you think about that? And I start probing, asking some questions and they don't have hardly any answers. And I'm thinking, I'm not, I, who am I to throw cold water on a, on a dream? I'm not going to do that, but I am going to tell you, there may be a few I's you want to dot. There may be a few T's you want to cross and they just have this blind optimism. Well, I don't, it's not my life. Live it any way you want. No, no, I've got to tell you, none of, none of them went on to achieve great success, which probably has, has culturized me. If that's a word to knowing how hard it is, right? It just reinforces what kind of what the self-limiting beliefs that you've had. So as I look through the bookcases and this lifelong curiosity about self-deception, a lot of it is focused on that and probably for good reason, because it is probably a very universal, mostly kind of a truth. We all have limits in our head of what we think can be accomplished. And that can be a really hard thing to overcome a terrifically hard thing to overcome. But thoughts like I had just recently because of all the space stuff, I don't know, that may help because I did think for hours on end in my insomnia, I did think, you know, I'm, I don't have a dream to go to space. I I don't have a dream to start an electric car company. I I mean, I'm not the things that now I, I get it. I get it. These people are doing things on a scale that I can't comprehend because I'm not a billionaire, but the things that they did to get to be billionaires aren't things that I'm pursuing. I mean, you think of Mark Cuban who, okay, he he's, you could really say he's barely a billionaire, right? So, I mean, the, in the grand scheme of things compared to a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk, you know, I mean, he's a piker <laughs> at what? $4.4 billion. I'm not taking anything away from him. He's got me beat all to pieces, but compared to those guys, nah, he's, He's, he's small change, but to try to broadcast Indiana basketball games while he's in Dallas, which is the real kind of, that's the high level view of broadcast.com and then sells to Yahoo for billions of dollars. Um, I'm not, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, you think today, well, trying to broadcast on the internet, trying to stream IU basketball games so that he could listen to them in Dallas. I mean, that's big deal. Well, yeah, you can think that today because streaming is pervasive, but it wasn't then think about trying to do something that nobody's done. I mean, just get your head wrapped around that. And maybe you're, maybe you are, maybe you're way more ambitious than me. Good for you. I, I salute you. Are you trying to do something that nobody else on the planet has ever done (laughs) yeah, me neither. So how hard can this be? Right? I mean, I am not trying to go to Mars. I am not trying to build a car that hasn't been built. I am not trying to produce some technology or produce some platform that has never existed before. I'm not trying to bring something from my head to reality that no one has ever done before. Oh, I got plenty of dreams in my head that I'm trying to bring to reality, but they're, I mean, they are, man, they are, they are so small. I have been challenged by the way, through the years, I have been challenged at not thinking big enough. Now, not by my wife, you know, my wife's always probably thinking that I'm thinking way too big, but I've had other people in my life, more professional people, who have, in fact, it's happened recently. I am right now I am in the, I'm in the throes of morphine. I don't feel so much like it's a pivot as it is a morphine as it is kind of an adaptation or a growth curve. 
I'm attempting to alter some things in my coaching practice over at growgreat.com. I've mostly been dormant on that website because, well, I've been busy with clients and, and I'm busy behind the scenes working on some things. And I'm probably going to rebrand that whole podcast and take it in a little different direction, which will end up being in a completely different direction because that's just kind of how these things work. But I'm doing that. And in doing that, I've been challenged as recently as within the last 90 days of getting too fixated on smallness of scale. And so I've had a ton of conversations with a few people, not many, but a few people because of the very thing that I most love to do. And what I most love to do is interact with clients. You know, you, you, you watch all the gurus or you read their stuff and everybody and their dog, when it comes to having a business that is conducted online, will tell you, you've got to get away from being paid for your time. And I don't bill for my time. I am paid for my time, but I would argue everybody's paid for their time, but I understand what they mean. You know, don't, you don't want to do something and be paid by the hour. Okay. Well, I, I could understand that. I've just long argued that I don't know that it's not, I don't know that it's a bad thing to be paid by the hour. You just may not like the current rate. I don't know what Mark Cuban's hourly rate would be, but it's, it's significantly higher than mine. <laughs> I remember reading J Paul Getty while he would eat breakfast. He would earn, I forgot, you know, it was millions of dollars, right? Because all this oil is just, it's being pumped. It doesn't matter if he's asleep. It doesn't matter if he's eating a plate of eggs. It doesn't matter what he was doing. He was, he was making money. So it goes with the oil business or did back then. Okay. Well, he was, he was earning money by the hour. It just so happened that he was earning millions of dollars per hour. Okay. Well, I just, I haven't hit that level. Not going to hit that level. Don't really want to hit that. Well, okay. I might like to, I'd like to have a good hour every now and again like that, but I get it. I understand it. You know, the way to do this is you got to scale it, make it passive income and all this hoopla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. I, it's just, I'm just not attracted to it because it seems to me that if that's the goal, then the money's what you're after. You're just after the money. I mean, come on, let's just face it. I want a passive income. That means I want to, I don't want to have to do anything for it. Well, I like what I do. I enjoy what I do. I enjoy talking to clients. I enjoy helping people. I enjoy looking at somebody in the face, whether it's on zoom or in person, and it's largely on zoom. And it always has been on zoom. I enjoy seeing the lights come on. I really do. And I get that. Okay. Well get away from that model, man. You just need to leave that model behind. And I'm like, but but you're wanting me to leave behind the very thing that I really love to do. I mean, it'd be like telling a writer who really loves to craft a story and to write, you need to stop doing that. I mean, you need to stop doing that. You need to outsource that. Well, <laughs> but it's the thing they love. So I really don't want to. And that almost immediately prompts somebody to tell me that I'm afraid of scaling. I'm like, I really don't think so. I just don't know. I, it's just what I love to do is counter to the money philosophy of don't be tethered to the work. I kind of enjoy being tethered to the work. I like doing the work and I want to do the work. I don't want to, I don't want to sit back and just hear my phone beep every time money hits a PayPal account or something. Oh, sure. Everybody can say, well, man, wouldn't that be great? Okay. Well, the money part, I'm not going to deny the money part would be great, but I don't want to sit around and watch PayPal for a living. <laughs> I, I would rather make an impact on somebody's life, but that's just me. And Hey, I could be deluded. What do I know? Cause that is the topic here. So there's this self-limiting beliefs and there's all this stuff. And as I look at these books, there's a ton of that. And there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot about self-deception when it comes to leadership when it comes to influence, when it comes to, you know, frankly, I, I can boil it all down because the, the scripture does it, you know, I'm, uh, for us to, 
the scriptural advice is for us to not think more highly of ourselves than we should. And it's very easy for us to do that. On the flip side, it is also easy for some of us to think less of ourselves than we should. How can you get it just right? Well, I don't know. That's why I'm posing the question today. <laughs> you oh, you thought you were going to get the answers. I'm sorry that I didn't, I didn't. Let's see. Being honest with yourself. How's it really going? No, I didn't clickbait you. I didn't clickbait you. Speaking of clickbait, I, I get really fascinated with these YouTubers and they're not all young. I mean, there's some older YouTubers that are wildly successful that have, you know, an excess of 4 million subscribers and the clickbait on YouTube. Just, I, I get, I get tickled at it almost every day, almost every day. I will. And I'm guilty. I'll click on something and I full well, I know it's clickbait. I know it's clickbait because I know what this YouTuber does. And I know that everything they do is clickbait. And I still click on it. Me and a, me and a hundred thousand other people in the first 15 minutes, you know, can, can click on it. And I'm like, you know, it's like spammers. You wonder why you get all these spam calls every single day. You know why you get them. Don't you? Because they work. Oh, not on you, but they're, they're working on somebody of the millions of calls that are made every day. I don't know. Hundreds of thousands of people. Do you think? probably maybe more are falling prey to these scams because they're answering or they're returning the worst yet they're returning the phone call. So it works. That's why you continue to get it. So clickbait works. I just admitted it works on me and I know I'm doing it. I know, I know the person has created this title and it's just absolutely it's, it's not true. And in some cases they don't ever, ever refer to it. In other cases, it's just completely out of context. Like today, this morning I clicked on one and it's like, um, you know why I'm leaving. Okay. Well, I knew it was clickbaity and I also knew enough about this person to knew, to, to knew, to know they're moving, they're moving. You know, what's over, not the channel, not the person leaving YouTube, which I'm sure ton of people clicked on thinking, what, 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 wait, you're, what you're leaving, you're leaving YouTube. No, he's leaving his home and he's moving into a new home. You know what this means? All these, this place where he's shot years of video, he's not going to be there anymore. He's leaving. He'll be shooting videos at his new place. You know, it is new 10,000 square foot mansion that he's able to get because he's got 2 million subscribers or whatever. I don't know. How'd I get off on that? Did I tell you that I love to write? I did tell you that, didn't I? And I think I did tell you that I mostly, I write and I kind of, I really, I really get an episode down in writing mostly before I hit record. I didn't do that today. And you know why? As much as I love to write, there are times, not many, but this is one of them. There are times that I just, I get, I just kind of get sick of wrestling with it. And this is one of those. I got, I don't know, maybe a thousand words. I'm guessing I got somewhere between 800 and a thousand words written over about two weeks. And I thought, okay, I mean, man, I, I should be further along. I mean, I should have 3000 words written and it's just not happening. I'm just not feeling it. I, I like the subject, but I'm just, I don't have a block. I'm just, I'm not in the flow as they say. And so I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm just, I'm just going to hit record and go. I used to do this quite a lot. In fact, some people, <laughs> some people have emailed me that, you know, back when I, I did more, well, the rappers call it freestyling. Do they call them rappers still? I'm old. I never did like rap. I am not an urban. Is that the right word for it? I think it is. I, I'm just, I am not into it. I'm not a hip hop fan. Sorry. I remember when Sugar Hill Gang came out. They had to be the first, didn't they? Yeah, it was kind of catchy. It was kind of catchy, but by and large, it is just so vulgar. It is so vile. It is so profane. And largely playing as you drive by, it is being played so loudly in cars. I just, nah, it's not my, not my cup of tea. 
Um, but there's this freestyling. Do they still do that? There's still guys and gals that freestyle rap. Well, I used to freestyle podcast, especially here. You know, I'd have an idea and then I'd just kind of take off. I, I didn't do it all the time, but I did it a lot more. I did it a lot more in the early days than I did now. And there, I've had people through the years that kind of enjoyed that a bit more, which I don't know what that says. It's kind of an indictment that all the, the, the countless hours that I think about something that I spend writing something it's like, okay, well, that's, we're not, we're not terribly impressed with that. Hey, I'm nobody ever said I was impressive. I'm just trying to be interesting and you can determine if I'm, I'm probably not succeeding at that today. Cause I'm kind of all over the place. So let's, okay, let's try to pull out of the ditch. Shall we? We're at least on the shoulder. So let me get back on the highway here. Self-deception. I'm super curious about it. I'm super curious about head trash and just all this stuff that gets in our way. And I absolutely positively have concluded at this stage of my life. Well, I did it much earlier too. came to the conclusion that we largely are the problem, but you already know that I understand that we can look at life. I was talking to somebody the other day and we were talking about parenting and whatnot. And I said, you know, as, as kids ourselves, because every parent was also a kid and I, I don't know a perfect parent. I certainly was not one am not one. My parents who are both still living, thankfully, they were far from perfect, but I just never did view my growing up as I'm, I'm being, I'm victim. I'm being victimized by these people. I am being victimized by this, this couple who put these people in my life. Why in the world was I born to these people? Because I am, I am completely, my life is being ruined by these people. (laughs) It just never crossed my mind. Uh, and I, while I may not have enjoyed every moment of childhood, I mean, who does, I, I just did not feel like I was being abused or victimized by these people. I do completely understand that there are people, there are kids who are, I, I understand that, but I'm talking about those of us who think, well, you know, dad was too tough. Mom was, mom was too soft or mom was too tough and dad was too soft or, you know, dad worked all the time or, you know, mom worked all the time or what? I mean, most of us, thankfully grew up in just reasonably average kinds of homes with average kinds of folks bringing us up. And it's fascinating to me that people can grow up in a perfectly good home that is not, not toxic and that is not fraught with alcoholism or physical or verbal or sexual abuse and feel my, my these people ruined my life. And yet somebody else can absolutely be victimized every way that a person can be victimized, abused every way that a person can be abused and they can emerge determined to live a great life. I'm fascinated by our ability as human beings to make up our minds about such things, to make up our minds that I'm, you're victimizing me. I'm a victim. I'm a victim of your behavior. I'm a victim of your choices versus, yep, you did this to me, but so it's not going to define me. I wish I knew what that was. Uh, I'm sure neuroscientists and psychologists and sociologists and whatever other ologists are out there that can study such things have some answers that I lack, but that free choice that we have as human beings to make up our own mind about things and how we see things is fascinating to me. How a person who really could hang their hat on the fact that a lot of damage was done to them at an age when they could not protect themselves but their refusal to let that have any impact on them as they are adults versus the person who is completely defined by it is a real fascinating study to me. All of this to say the power of a mind made up. I 
I mean, there are just few things more powerful on the planet than the power of a mind made up. And that can be for good. It can be for bad. It can be done with complete delusion, with a complete disconnect of reality. And I'm not talking about mental health issues, which exist and are real, because there are people that are disconnected from reality, and it clearly is a mental health issue. But there are other people that there is no real mental health, quote unquote, issue, but they just have a point of view. They just have a perspective. You know, mom did this to me, and they're going to go to their grave, mom having done that to them. And it, it set the whole trajectory of their life. And they just can't get past it. Trusted advisors. One of the best defenses that I am aware of for us to avoid, maybe even eliminate our own self deception and our own wrong point of view. And I don't mean wrong in terms of, well, yeah, I kind of do. I started to say, I don't mean it in a subjective way, but maybe I kind of sort of do because take the person who was abused. They have a choice. I'm a victim. I'm not going to be a victim. Okay. Well, yeah, truthfully you were, you were victimized as a kid, but now it's a choice as an adult. I'm no, I'm not going to be a victim. I'm not going to live like a victim. Yes. I was taken advantage of. Yes. I was too young to defend myself. No, that will not be how I live my life. The best, one of the best defenses for this, in my opinion, is having trusted advisors, is having people help us, having people who care enough about us that they are willing to help us and to challenge us and to help us see things more clearly, to help us avoid our blind spots. Now, that is way easier said than done, to find people like that. Because trusted advisors who are both willing and able to help us avoid self-delusion, these are not easy people to capture out in the wild. They're out there, but they're really difficult to spot, and they're even tougher to land. (laughs) It's easier to find people who don't fit the bill because, well, they're just in the majority. There There are people who are willing, but they're not able. There are also people who are able but they're not willing. And that's not a harsh judgment. It's just the simple truth. People are busy. People have their own lives. They got their own problems. And they've also got their own inner circle of people that they likely are already serving. And so a lot of these people just, they just don't have the bandwidth to add you to the mix. (laughs) So I don't blame people for being unavailable. I am completely wired to fit that role, but I'm going to be the first to tell you, I am not available for everybody. I'm just not. And I know that. And sometimes I'm not available because I just know I'm not the right person for this person. And other times I just don't have it. I just don't have the energy. I don't have the bandwidth for it. And my empathy is so stinking high. I have to be sometimes on guard. Yep. I absolutely have to protect myself sometimes. And most times I'm, I'm pretty shabby at it to tell you the truth, but then there are other people. They're just not fit for the task, right? I mean, they're just not, and it doesn't matter. Well, they're not fit for this person, but they would be right for that. No, they're not right for anybody. And I rather suspect that there's a larger chunk of the population that fits this bill than not. Because these are the kind of people who live their entire lives and they never tell anybody, I love you. I I don't understand people like that. I try, but I just, I, and I don't, I'm not judging them harshly. Psychologists and psychiatrists can figure it out. I I can't, I just truly know there's something there. There there's absolutely, there's something there. There's some major roadblock there when a, a human being cannot look at another human being and utter the words I love you. I don't get it, but that's me. I also am fascinated with people who absolutely positively cannot say, I'm sorry. I I don't get, I don't get it. But then again, I have to come to the reality that saying either one of those things is an easy thing for me and not only easy to say, but very easy to mean, right? So 
we may not understand what somebody else struggles with because we don't struggle with it. And I suspect that a person that can't say, I love you. And a person that can't say, I'm sorry, probably aren't likely to be the best at being a trusted advisor, unless it pertains to some area in which they are experts. For example, I'm thinking of somebody that may be a terrific financial expert, but they just, they don't have any empathy. They really don't have the ability to connect at a personal level. Now they can spreadsheet you from here till there. Have you ever seen the movie, the accountant? Every time this movie's on, I watch it. I've seen this thing umpteen times. And, and if it, if it came on within the next day or two, I promise you, I'm watching it again. These could be people that are really great at telling you what to do with your money, but they are likely going to be pretty awful at, at having you share with them why you want to do some specific thing with your money. Cause they just, you know, that might not make any fiscal sense to them, but it's what you want to do with your money. <laughs> I don't know. I got to thinking about this and thought, well, how can I approach this in a way that can be helpful for you other than to provoke some thought, which is always the goal. And here we are as a group of people, you and me, we're just trying to lean toward wisdom, trying to lean away from our own foolishness. And so it largely is about, okay, what have we learned? What have we learned so far? And here I am. I don't know where you're at on the timeline of life. You know where I'm at. I'm 64. Here I am. Uh, I've got nine people in my tribe. Five of them are kids, grandkids. Yes, I've got two parents. No, they're not in that nine. I'm not being exclusionary. It's just, right, I've got my immediate family. And, yes, my parents are involved, and I've got a sister. And I'm not saying that there aren't other people that I love. Don't misunderstand this. But when it comes to just saying, okay, well, who's in your tribe? Okay, well, i got nine people. I basically have nine people that really, really matter to me. And after that, <laughs> no offense, but it, it falls off pretty sharply. Um, and I got to thinking about, okay, trusted advisors and people that could help you kind of see things more clearly. And I, I thought all the way back to being a little kid, even before elementary school. And like you, they were, it was parents, right? It was parents. For me, there were only three. There were, there were my mom, my dad, and my mother's mother, my maternal grandmother. That was it. That was it. Now, let me make a distinction here between trusted advisors and influencers. And when I say influencers, I don't mean it as in social media influencers. I mean people that have an impact on your life, people that influence you. They influence your thinking. They influence your behavior. They influence your point of view everything. So I had influencers. I don't, as a little kid, I mean, we don't have trusted advisors, right? We had friends. Well, even the friends weren't trusted advisors. I mean, you really couldn't trust your friends when they said, Hey, let's go do something really stupid. And Hey, why don't you go first? <laughs> Hardly trusted advisors. And you're just talking about homework or you're talking about school stuff or, you know, what do y'all want to do now? You know, you want to play with cars. You want to build a fort. What do you want to do? Okay. It's not, you're not in trusted advisor territory. I really don't know that I got into trusted advisory territory until I was about, I don't know, 14, maybe because that's when I began to single out a particular person and let's go back to that subject matter expertise. I had influencers and they were largely older people, by the way. In fact, they were largely old people. Well, they weren't, I look back now, they weren't as old as I am now, but boy, you know, when you're a kid, they, everybody seems old, but there were people that I admired. There were people that I enjoyed being around. There were people that treated me as a kid with some degree of attention and respect. And, you know, you weren't just kind of shooed off because you were a kid underneath somebody's feet. And I admittedly was that kid who was kind of hanging around the adults and doing a ton of eavesdropping and listening and paying attention. I, these were people I esteemed highly. And a lot of them, because 
well, faith was a big deal. Going to church was a big deal. Being a Christian was a big, it was the priority for my family. And in time it was my priority too. And so I'm 14 or so. And one of these men in particular, and one of these men was a gospel preacher. And these were men who had heavily influenced me from the time I was just a small kid. Um, I admired this guy. I admired his sermons. I admired his Bible knowledge and I absolutely pursued him, um, to make him more of an influencer in my life because, well, he was a subject matter expert. He was the best Bible scholar that I knew. And that was just at the beginning. I was about 14. My parents had known him most all of his life. He had known me all my life. And he was about 20 years up the trail from me. So that was kind of a good setup, right? Here he is a couple of decades ahead of me in life's journey. So he can point out, Hey, when you get here, there's a bad hole, avoid this place. Uh, somebody who had seen a lot more than me had studied the Bible a lot longer than me. Just, just a great, a great, great resource. Well, over time, by the time I'm married, which is now we're about seven years into this thing, I have fostered this relationship. I have fueled this relationship. I have pursued this relationship and we're, we're, we're really tight. We're really tight. And that was over 40 years ago. I recorded an episode about old friends and I included him because, well, he was still alive then. He died January of 2020. He was 83 years old. And I was just completely devastated because by that point, well, for decades prior, he, he was my most trusted advisor. Uh, he was without peer. There is no question. And he was the last of a handful of old men who had surrounded me since I was a boy. And so there was that, right? This is just the place that you get in. And I've talked about this before, so I won't bore you with it, but as you get older, this is just the place that you get to, you just get to a point where you outlive your, your mentors and your trusted advisors, you know, but here was a guy who he had seen my ambitions very early in my teen years. He had fueled my ambitions for good. Um, I wanted to be a good husband. I wanted to be a wise father. I wanted to be a faithful friend. I wanted to be a good Christian. I wanted to be impactful in these areas and others. And he was just a person who was very capable of influencing me to be as good as I could be and was constantly challenging me. And that 20 year gap was really pretty ideal, pretty ideal. And when he passed, well, it pretty much changed everything for me because he was, he was the man with whom I was the closest. He was the man who had always just been a phone call away every week for as long as I could remember. And all of a sudden he is gone. My most trusted advisor, my most trusted expert, safest advisor gone. Well, I circled the wagons as much as I could. I leaned into a few people, but very quickly I realized, you know, I'm, I'm not being fair to these people. In fact, I'm being grossly unfair because I'm looking for strengths in people that they just simply don't have. I've had some really good friends who just aren't wired for it and it's no fault of theirs and it doesn't diminish my love or respect. It's just not their deal. And I just found the ability to be a deeply trusted advisor is rare. It's just rare. And I had hoped that somebody could step up. I had hoped that somebody would step in, but in time, I realized you're dude, you're just, you're asking too much. You're not being reasonable. You're not being realistic. And eventually I came to that conclusion rightfully so and made some other adjustments. I was wrong to seek it. And I'm by extension, I'm kind of giving you some advice 
you know, don't ask somebody to be something they're not. It's, it's a, it's not fair. It really is not fair. So at the time I'm, I'm 63 years old and it's time to circle the wagons more tightly. Now, as I'm coming to the conclusion and I've, I'm, I'm painfully aware that 64 is coming fast and, um, okay, this person's not, it's just not fair to put that burden on them. It's not their deal. It's not their cup of tea and probably age. I suspect had mostly to do with this, my circling the wagons more tightly became family and mostly two people Two count them, two people, my wife and my son and in that order. So by the time January, 2021 rolls around this one year anniversary of my trusted advisors passing by this point, I'm deeply committed. Now I've always been committed to my wife, but I'm deeply committed to these two people now as my most trusted advisors. And when I say that never before in my life, has it been as exclusionary as it is now or as exclusive, maybe the right word for it. So as I sit here today, I can tell you that I've got two trusted advisors and I'm talking about any and every phase of my life that I can trust these people with. And I do trust them with, and it's my wife and my son, and it largely is my wife. And that's not because I don't trust my son. It's come on. He's a, he's a father of three and he's got, he's got stuff. He's got a lot of stuff. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Now, as I look at that, here's what I, here's what I know. And here's why this works for me. And here's why I get that this may not work for everybody. Um, I know that there are wives who are their can be their husband's harshest critic. I know other wives who can be their husband's biggest cheerleader. And I happen to be married to a woman who is neither. I mean, truthfully, she's just not either one of those. She is not at all my biggest cheerleader and nor is she at all my biggest critic. And that's helpful. That's helpful. When, when you're, when you're needing somebody who will challenge you, uh, here's, here's the only caveat that I would put when it comes to a husband and a wife or very, very, you know, really tight friends. And even though my most trusted advisor that I lost to death, we were really tight friends. It was a unique circumstance because here's the problem. The problem is the vested interest of both of you. So as I'm sitting here and I'm asking this reticent client, new client, you know, to share with me how things are really going fine, fine. The reluctance of this person eventually got broken down when he became convinced. I don't have any ulterior motive here. Your success is my success. I'm not living vicariously through you. I'm not beholden to you. You're not beholden to me. We're just here. I'm just here for you. And if you don't want to take advantage of that, that's fine. But it's your loss because I'm only here for you. I'm here to help you. Your success is my success. And when that clicked, things began to change. That is a really difficult sentiment to honestly, truthfully express between a husband and a wife. I mean, Rhonda, my wife, she has a vested interest in the outcome of my life. We, we are closely tied to one another as she goes. So go I, as I go, so goes she, and there's just no separating that, that, that that's just its own unique kind of a, kind of a problem when it comes to being honest with yourself and having somebody help you the way that we're both wired kind of benefits us. Uh, I'm grossly more sentimental than she will ever be. And she is, you know, very practical and kind of very to it. And I know that she can just get so completely, you know, bored with me <laughs> and whatever my pursuits might be. And so I just don't, I just don't put that on her. 
I'm completely vulnerable with her. I'm completely open with her, but I also know there are some things that just, you know, make her eyes roll up in the back of her head. <laughs> and so I, I tried to avoid making her eyes roll up in the back of her head. Um, right. Come on. It's just the way husbands and wives, right? It's what you do. You got enough respect for one another and, and you know, each other well enough by now, uh, you, you know, one another's limitations and preferences and right. So there's that. So I'm sitting here today telling you no, no, I, 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 I am now having to really lean hard into making sure that I'm being honest with myself and candid with myself and answer for myself. How's it really going? But I'm also here to tell you that I'm doing that now as a 64 year old, I'm doing that 50 years after I began my real in earnest quest as a 14 year old to make sure that I had people in my life that I could do that with for the first time. For the first time in 50 years, I'm really having to kind of go it alone. I'm not advising it, mind you. It just happens to be where I'm at. And I'm telling you that because I don't want you to go it alone unless you've got a lot of years of experience of being challenged and challenged and challenged and challenged and challenged. And I also happen to have developed kind of an innate proclivity and that is curiosity. I'm really, really curious and I'm really, really interested in trying to answer the question. What don't you know? What aren't you seeing? And I also know that that's not the way everybody rolls. We do need help. We all need help, including me. It's just having to morph and kind of change now as I'm in getting older. I'm having to do a bit more of the heavy lifting. And as I talk with my father, who's 97, and I talk with my mom, who's like 88, I realize, you know, that's largely where they've been for a number of years now. And I realize that part of it is growing older. And that doesn't mean that it's easier. And that doesn't mean that we get it right. You and I both know there's a lot of old people around who don't see it quite accurately who are not being honest with themselves. But it's interesting to me that as I talk with other people who have really old people in their life, like I do, you go back decades and I hear people describe their parents. I hear people describe the other old people that are in their life. And they describe people that were pretty much like they are today, maybe more exaggerated in older age, but they were largely that way 20 years ago. 30 years ago. Yep. There's exceptions for sure. There always are. But it's interesting to me that a person who was 40 and kind of delusional, and if they get to be 80, eh, still largely delusional <laughs> about some things. I mean, take that whole victim thing. Yeah, if you're a victim at 20, the odds are you're probably going to be a victim at 40. And the odds are, if you still are alive at 80, yeah, still a victim, right? So if you're young, Get on this early, get on absolutely facing the realities of your life early. My best advice, which may fall flat, but it's all I got is the more quickly you can own it, the more quickly you can realize that there's no downside to you owning it. Meaning you own the outcomes of your life. You own the behavior. You own what you think. The quicker you will face that reality, the better. Again, I haven't found the downside to that. I get that the person can say, well, I'm not going to own it. You know, dad did this to me. Mom did that to me. My grandparents did this to me. The foster parents did. What's the downside if you just own it? Look at the control and the power that you give yourself to change it, to fix it. I don't know why. These billionaires are fascinated with space, but they are maybe because they're having to go to space to find something that's big enough to chase because there's nothing as big as space. Maybe, I don't know. What are you trying to chase? 
And if maybe like me, you're just trying to chase being the best that you can be. And that, I mean, for us, right, that can seem like you're chasing space. It seems like such a long, long way to get to our ideal person, our ideal self. Uh, But it's doable. I don't know how honest you're being with yourself as for you to answer. And I don't know how it's really going with you, but you know, I do hope that there's somebody that you can talk with about that. I can only tell you that I'm thankful that I had a few old guys in my life that I could do that with for a long, long time. For the better part of 50 years, I had them. And while I'm sad that I don't have them any longer, I'm glad I had them for as long as I had them. And boy, did it make a difference in my life. And you know what I'm doing today? You could probably already guess. I'm trying to be that old man for somebody else. And through the extension of this podcast, maybe that somebody else is you. The website is Leaning Toward Wisdom. My name is Randy Cantrell. Greetings and welcome inside the Yellow Studio. Mm-hmm.